And we're live, baby. Testing one, two, testing one, two. This is In These Moments. My name is Wale Emanuel. My name is Timmy Oguniro. It's good to have you here. It's good to have the first episode of this podcast. It's a podcast that really means a lot to us. Yeah. We've been working on this together for a while. How do you feel about this starting now? Oh man, I'm a mix of different emotions, honestly. I'm excited, of course. I'm also nervous. It's like our baby, kind of, that we've been talking about and planning on having for for a little bit now. But I feel good. I feel good because I feel like these stories are finally coming to light. I feel like we've been doing this process where we've been collecting and finally we get to share it. And maybe that's where the, a little bit of the nerves come from but i think that i'm also super excited just to just to see the conversations that come from this that's what i'm really looking forward to what about you um i feel the same thing you're feeling it's one thing to work on something by yourself and it's another to have all these people listening to it so from that perspective is a bit nerve-wracking but it's also exciting you know it's super exciting i'm happy to be doing this i'm sure you are as well just can't really wait for people to listen to all these great stories the people that tell us the stories they really feel connected to what we're trying to do yeah and it takes a lot to have some of the discussions that people have with us like people talk about some really deep stuff Mm -hmm. I just want us to have a place where we have a wide range of topics, a wide mm-hmm. range of stories, a wide yeah. range of emotions that we go through together. Yeah. I would like us to have a place where it feels like a family and yes. people can tune into every episode and know that they're about to go on a ride. Now to our first story, it's a story that's very close to me because it involves one of my very close friends. And it's it's funny that we've known each other for 11 years now and I didn't know the story till he told me. It's one of those things about male friendships. With male friendships, we've not been wired to be vulnerable and to be like really open with these things. And I also understand that not everybody wants to talk about certain parts of their lives, Mm -hmm. but it was just really surprising to me that this all of this was going on yeah exactly and you talked to him during this time period you guys were in touch it wasn't like you were out of touch right yeah we yeah we went through so much together like we we Mm. used to party together we used to like hang out together play fifa together like we had like a whole group that we hung out together i don't think any of us lives in new york anymore that which is actually funny Mm. so we've all pretty much like found different paths and just like gone to different um parts of of the country country, and you know, so last um, last November, um, one of our friends was was getting married. I was the best man at the wedding, and he was one of the groomsmen. And the night before the wedding, we were driving back to the hotel. So I told him about the idea. I'm like, yeah, I'm working on this thing. And he's like, oh, really? And I played him a clip of a prior interview I did, and he really liked it. It's like, oh, bro, I think I have a story for you. Wow. And I'm like, oh, word. It's like, yeah, like, I think there's something you, you want to hear. And I'm like, you know what? Cool. And so months later, after the things happened and I was ready to, you know, take his story, I called him and I'm like, yo, bro, tell me about this is story that you want to tell me. Like, just give me like a summary. Whenever you want to do stories, you want to have an idea of what you're working on. Mm-hmm. 
mm-hmm. you know, so you can know how to approach and see where to go from. I was just really blown away. And mm. it just really shows that people around you experience things that that you might not even be aware of. Yeah, exactly. And you also of like how close you are with them. Yeah, exactly. And you also like just enforced to what I thought about him is a really smart guy. He's a really hardworking, really dedicated guy. Mm-hmm. and i was so happy like he felt comfortable, comfortable with you yeah you know sharing this story because it's a very vulnerable story it's a very personal yeah. story so without taking more of your time let's get into my story with daniel my name is daniel uh, i was born here in the united states lived here till i was about eight and left for nigeria in 1995 where i spent 11 years there i went i completed my elementary school completed high school, and then came back to the United States in 2006. For most Nigerians, we know what taking back means, right? It's more of, yeah, you get tricked into, hey, yeah, we're going to go see your grandparents, and then you just end up being dropped off, uh, never to return again. <laughs> <laughs> so it, it was like that. That's what it felt like. When we were going to Nigeria, it was never, well, at least for me, I didn't expect it to be 11 years in the country, you know, without knowing when I'm going to be coming back to the U.S. It was just, hey, it's going to be a quick trip, a quick summer trip. I'll be back in the U.S., you know, back with my friends, back in school and whatever the case is. But but I'm grateful for it because, I mean, I think it's it's helped shape the kind of person I am right now. Do I think, um, do I do things and, you know, all the nine yards. So I remember the first day we got to Nigeria. And then, I mean, obviously the first thing you notice is, you're driving down inside this car and you see like a whole bunch of people on the streets and they're just different, you know, just act different. I remember this one child I saw. It was this little kid running around butt naked on the street. Ah, I'm like, ah, man, you're not anti-wanted. <laughs> I'm like, this is going to be something. It was just something totally different from you know, anything I've ever experienced at the time. Upon getting to our grandparents' place, we saw chickens running around freely. I obviously went downstairs. We started playing. I got my first bruise on the first day I got there. Fell down while running. I'm thinking about it now. It's a it's a sweet experience. Just remembering that very 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 first day. We were the Americana, you know, kids. So yeah. just got back. Everybody wanted to chill with us, hang with us, and all of that. But you know, after a while, it became real. It's like all right. There's no lights first night. You know, everybody's crying like, what the hell just happened? There's no water coming upstairs. You know, we, we lived we lived in a three-story building, so we didn't have running water coming out the taps. So there are times where uh, we had a housemaid, but when we grew up and were old enough to fetch water, we had to, like, go to the borehole or go to a well to go get water. So, yeah, man, like, I lived the not-so-rich life, you know? The Jaman Jaman life, for those that don't know what that means, it's, mm-hmm. it's the struggle life, you know? So at this point in the story, I took a pause and asked him to tell me about living in the U.S. as a kid and talk about the dynamics of, of his family. My parents didn't live together. It was just myself, my mother, and my two younger siblings. It's pretty tough, mom. My mom had to like go out to work a lot. So there are times when I would have to take charge of, of my siblings. I don't think of it and think of it as being a crazy tough time or an unhappy period. Maybe unhappy because, you know, my parents were together or whatever the case is. But there was never really a time where I just thought that, hey, my mom is not around. Why isn't she around or whatever the case is? It was just, I don't really remember a time when we all lived together, which is sad. All I remember is, you know, there are times when he would come around, I'd get excited. I was pretty young that time. 
And, you know, sometimes I go stay with him for a weekend or whatever, whatever the case is. But there was never a time when I was, you know, curious enough to just ask what the main reason was behind the separation or why they both weren't living under the same roof. So I went to school in Nigeria, was um, first couple of private schools. And then, you know, when things got pretty rough, we had to like go to the public school system and it was, it was crazy. Tell me about Man. that. Man. All, right, all right. So me coming from the United States, you know, everything's chill. Everything is pretty much, well, it wasn't tough. You know, to now going to a public school in Nigeria and not just any public school. So the public school I went to was known for the craziest of fights, man, in, 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 in the city I was in. So when I'm saying fights, right, it's not just regular fist fights. We're talking about bringing machetes and bringing, like, knives and voodoo, all that stuff. So, I mean, I'm over here being told I'm going to this school and then having people tell me about what they've heard about the school and what they've experienced. I'm like, damn. Why me? Why always me? You know, but it was an experience. It was just, I really, I really enjoyed my time there. I think there's something about living through struggle that just builds you up as a person. And I mean, you meet some amazing people, some brilliant minds, and you just learn another side of life that just equips you to, to tackle whatever comes your way. So the plan was, hey, you got to Nigeria, of course, you know, during one of the phone conversations I had with my mother then, like, why did you leave us in Nigeria, boo-hoo? Ah, I can't believe you did this. And she's like, all right, don't worry. After you're done with high school, you'll be coming back. Your mom was back here. Yeah, she was here. All right, what about your dad? Um, at that point, we, we had, my, I personally hadn't seen my dad since maybe 92. Oh, okay. And this was, okay. yeah, so. Okay, so your mom so, yeah. was in the U.S. and then you were with your grandma in Nigeria. Yeah, all my right. grandparents, yeah, my maternal side of the family. Um, so yeah, um, got to speak in. She said after high school, I finished high school in 2003. You know, good grades, everything. So I was ready. I was pumped. I'm like, hey, you know what? This is the moment I've been waiting for for the longest. Uh, I'm glad I'm finally done with high school. So it's time for me to just get my plane ticket and just fly down to the U.S. I was already looking up schools. I wanted to go to Duke. I wanted to go to Brown. I'm like, I'm ready for this. <laughs> I wanted to be a doctor. You know, uh, but then you, you dial the number, you call mom. Mom is not picking up. And she's not picking up for like three years. It's like, what's going on here, you know? Wait, she so didn't pick up for three years? I mean, it was, it was, it was a pretty choppy period where... You know, communication wasn't as great as as you. Uh, okay, okay. And that was over the course of the eleven years I spent in Nigeria. So we started going into those three years after you finished high school, and how we felt pretty much being in limbo in Nigeria. You know, I saw friends I graduated with from high school in school, almost done with school. I'm over here three years after graduating high school. Obviously, I was waiting for for some word, some news from my mom to to send a plane ticket. You know, so I could come back to the U.S. Um, that never happened because of, you know, the way we came to Nigeria. Like pretty much a lot of people knew that, hey, you know, these guys just came from the United States, whatever the case is. So people knew that, you know, we were U.S. citizens. So there was this, there was this time when I was approached, you know, by some guy and he said he was going to help me out, come to the U.S. But I didn't know what, what was behind, you know, the, the kind offer that was being extended. I, I met with him. We spoke. He told me what I had to do. I'm like, you must be out of your goddamn mind. This dude was a drug dealer. He specialized in finding people that um, could travel out of the country to pretty much, pretty much package drugs and give them to travel out of the country, and then they pay them a fee for that, for that, for for doing that. Okay. So he approached me, 
and told me like, hey, you know, can you do this? I'm like, no, that's against every single thing I believe in. I can't do that. You must be out of your mind, blah, blah, blah. So I walked away from that. Three months down the line, after some other events happened in my family, I just felt like that was just the only way that I would leave the country and just, you know, come to the U.S. My grandmother has five kids. Um, her firstborn is is late now. Um, he had TB and diabetes. So it was crazy. Um, thing is, my grandparents at the time, well, my grandmother still is alive. My grandfather is, is late too. They were both pensioners. So they pretty much didn't have any income coming in. I weren't hearing too much from my mother at the time. So we didn't have too much money coming in from that part. Okay. And then we had my uncle who was not who was no longer working because of how how sick he was from you know his illnesses that anytime he needed to buy medication he depended on the family and there were just so many times so many instances where and there were there were just huge fights on money like hey I need to buy this I need to buy that do you want me to just die why can't you help me why can't you support me it just so happened that after I turned this guy down you know about three months later there was like fights upon fights you know due to money due all these different issues aside from that i was just sitting at home i was there was no it didn't appear to be any lights not at the end of my term at that time it didn't seem i was going to get into school in, in nigeria there was no chance that plane ticket was coming soon for me to leave the country and come back to the u.s my father was just not even in the picture period you know so there was not like there was any dependency or any hope that anything would come from that and i was just pretty much all right you know what let me hear what this guy has to say and see if this could be an option for me. No, what I know now, I think, I think I still had one more option, right? The U.S. Embassy was in, in, was in Lagos. For some reason, I just didn't think like, hey, you know what? I could just go to the U.S. Embassy, tell them, hey, I'm a U.S. citizen, tell them what my situation was and see if I can get them to, you know, sponsor my trip back. But that just didn't occur to me. We had a couple of meetings after, after that first time. And, you know, he told me what it would entail, told me what I would have to do. And then after giving it some thought, I just, you know, I agreed to the proposition. So they wrapped, they wrapped these things up, like the drugs up into cooler nut size pellets. And then I had to like swallow as much as I could, you know, before my trip. I've been very fortunate in my life because, I mean, in hindsight, when you think about the gravity of what I did, I mean, aside from, you know, the illegality of what I did, if one of those pellets just popped within me, that's an immediate overdose. I'm dead. I had to swallow about 70 of these things down into my stomach and then travel with that. And you know how long that trip is. Wait, so were you told not to eat? Because what if you had to use the bathroom? Well, you just couldn't use the bathroom. Um, they made this smoothie type of drink to help assist me in swallowing these things. I remember they got one of the guys telling me, hey, um, if you need to go to the bathroom, you can't go. And if even if you do badly, just make sure that you pick up any pellets that you shit out and like wash it, rinse it out very well and swallow it back. So how were you at the airport when you were going through security? Like what was going through your mind? Obviously, I'm super nervous. I, I just feel like everybody at that point has like x-ray vision and they could see right through and they could see that I have something in me. So um, I land, I land JFK. I pass through security. Security looks at me. I couldn't maintain eye contact. I didn't have like a big enough bag. 
So, I mean, they start interrogating me, like, hey, you're a young guy, blah, 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 blah. Where are you coming from? Where are you going to? Um, where are you going to go see? And then he goes, over the past X amount of months or years, uh, we see young people like you come into the country. They do this, that, that. They're told to swallow pellets. They do this, they do that. So he says all of that and says, is there anything you want to tell me? I'm like, I don't know what you're talking about. And he keeps asking, keeps pushing, keeps pushing, keeps pushing. And then tells me that they want to do a search, that they want to take me out back. So I'm like, damn. You know, in my head, I'm like, yeah, this is it. It's a wrap. I've been quiet. So anyway, I, I, I go to the room. You know, they search me. They find nothing. And then they keep talking, keep talking. And he says, you know, um, we have the right to detain you for about 40 hours. And when we detain you, we're going to like tie you to a bed and you're going to shit yourself and you're going to shit everything out that you have. So pretty much just lying to just frighten me the more and make me, you know, confess that I had something. So eventually I did. I was, I was very scared. I, I did not know, you know, what to do. And yeah, that's how I got caught up in the criminal justice system. Uh, I was arrested. Um, I stayed in a facility on JFK for about, I think, 24 to 48 hours. They gave me like a laxative um, so I could pass out everything that I had within me. I did. And then from there, you know, I got sent to like uh, a federal prison um, in Brooklyn, matter of fact. For, for days, I was crying my eyes out. I'm like, how did I get into this mess? I think what was even much stronger in my mind was like, all my dreams are pretty much going to vanish now. Like, how can I possibly make anything out of my life from this point on? When I got into my cell and, you know, spoke to people and did some of my readings, I'm like, all right, you know, so right about now, it seems like my entire life is just going to be a complete waste. So it's pretty tough, you know. Um, I had a lawyer that was assigned to me because obviously I'm broke. I don't have any money. Fast forward six months down the line. Like, I, I, I keep saying this, you know, I, I cannot underestimate how lucky of a person I am because I mean typically you know for for people in very my very same situation doing the very same things I've done I mean they've they've received like years for, for like time you know for those very same offenses mm -hmm. you know three four years sometimes seven years but by the time I went through the entire process you know I stayed in jail for about six months when I went for sentencing, the judge looked at me. I told the judge, like, hey, you know, this is my plan. This was my plan. Like, the main reason why I did this was not because of any selfish, you know, financial reasons. But mm -hmm. I was stuck, you know, in this country for three years, not doing anything. I really wanted to go back to school, but there just didn't seem to be an outlet for me. And when somebody realized how desperate I was, they reached out and just thought that, you know, they could use you know, what I had to get what they wanted. And long story short, I got sentenced to time served, which means that the amount of time that I spent in prison was the only amount of time that I had to do. So um, from a potential four to seven year sentence to just spending six months is unbelievable. Funny thing is this, you know, on the day of sentencing, uh, my before then, my lawyer asked me, hey, you know, if you're able to convince the judge to, you know, release you, um, where are you going to go? I said, I don't have anyone. It's like, all right, that's going to be a problem because, I mean, the judge might release you, but, I mean, if he knows that you don't have anywhere to go, then he's probably just going to tell you to stay. I mean, like, they put in a lot of work. Uh, I had I had so much favor, so much luck on my side that 
even the prosecutor was rooting for me on the day of my sentencing. Like the prosecutor was telling the judge, you know, things about my educational background, like the societies I was in while I was in high school, saying that, okay, you know what, even though I'm supposed to go hard against this guy, it's just obvious that, you know, this guy was just a victim of circumstances. My lawyer went out, you know, tried to, you know, reach out to different organizations uh, just to see, hey, you know what, if he's released, he has somewhere to go. So they were able to reach out to this shelter, Shelter for At-Risk Youth um, in Manhattan that pretty much accepted people that didn't have places to go. So on, my, on the day of my sentencing, you know, when the judge asked that, um, she said that, hey, you know, we've reached out to this organization and um, he'll be staying with them while he gets you know while he gets his act together so we're going to pause the surf a little bit right here i know you're thinking how was he able to get just six months in prison if you know anything about the american justice system you know that six months in prison is not really what you get from this kind of story i had the same question so i decided to reach out to an attorney who pretty much confirmed that he was very lucky my name is Lola Oyekin. I am an attorney. Um, I specialize in business transactions and contracts, but I also have a little bit of a background in criminal and a little bit of family law, employment law, and just general legal matters. Criminally, what happens is you get arrested. Typically, for his kind of case, because it's not like the feds were chasing him, it just kind of happened spontaneously. They'll, you know, submit different documents to the court so they can officially charge you with a crime and they'll state like the details, all of that jazz. Um, then you'll go through certain, won't really get into specifics, but you'll go through certain procedural things. Ignore law and order here. Um, but you'll go through certain procedural, you know, procedural things. There'll be motions, there'll be this, there'll be that. The important thing is during the time where you'll be kind of negotiating whether you should admit guilt or no contest or, you know, try to plea out or actually go to trial. One very important thing that'll be part of that, especially if you're leaning towards a guilty or no contest plea, will be um, the sentencing portion, which is done separate from the actual finding of guilt. And the sentencing portion will be done either by judge or jury. And part of that is what's called a pre-sentencing investigation or a PSI. Now the PSI itself will have like Gosh, it's been a while since I looked at one, but it'll probably have anywhere from about 20 to 25 questions, sometimes a little more, sometimes a little less, where it'll just ask biographical data, like where were you born, um, the kind of home you were brought up in, um, any sort of special achievements, any knocks to you, because some of those knocks will, will be, have you been arrested before? Do you have a drug problem? You know, what's your family history? Is there addiction there? Was there abuse there? It, it, it'll, it covers everything. The way to ask the questions, it's again, it's just meant to catch a lot of biographical data and a lot of almost lineal history about you and your life. So something that will then go to both the prosecutor and the defense attorney, and then they can kind of meet together and talk about, okay, there's a recommended sentence for this crime for a first time, second time, third time, you know, whatever. Um, there's a recommended sentence for this. And then what do you recommend? And most recommended sentences, it's kind of like when you, when you hear somebody say, oh, I'm facing this amount of time or up to that amount of time, and then they'll end up getting less or they'll end up getting more. This is why. So that pre-sentencing investigation or PSI, like I said, will introduce mitigating factors or also aggravating factors. In his case, I'm sure he had a lot more mitigating factors than he had aggravating factors. He had the fact that he was born here, but he was basically removed to Nigeria essentially against his will because he was a minor, right? I'm pretty sure they would have asked questions about his financial circumstances because that plays in. So it can be 
shown that essentially he was being taken advantage of. Like, yes, he could be a very articulate and intelligent student, but even the most articulate and intelligent student who is in abject poverty can be tempted to do the wrong thing because it's an opportunity to take care of themselves. They'll look at his age. They'll look at, you know, they looked at a bunch of things, obviously. If he said the prosecutor was even rooting for him, then definitely the prosecutor, because the prosecutor will sit down and talk with you, you know, in the presence of your counsel, but they will sit down and talk to you and get a feel for you, you know? And if the prosecutor did feel like, this this, this is just a kid. This kid didn't know what he was doing. I'm not going to punish a kid who was just a victim of his circumstances. Again, this is where I come with the favor part because there are a lot of prosecutors who do know, you know, that somebody has been surrounded by unfavorable circumstances and they will actually mentally knock that against them. But I still stand by there's a little bit of favor there or a lot. <laughs> now back to Daniel. 20th of October, 2006, I get released on this cold fall evening. I went to my lawyer's office after that. Um, I was given a jacket from one of her colleagues because it was super cold and I didn't have any <laughs> I didn't have a jacket. And um, I think she gave me her metro card, her monthly metro card, and she gave me $100. And she said, yeah, Daniel, I wish you the best of luck. This and the third. And yeah, so I was released. Upon getting to the place I was supposed to be, we mixed it up. So she, she, <laughs> we got on the train together. Where, where we got off, there are two shelters there. There was an adult shelter and the shelter I was supposed to be going to was a little further down the street. I ended up staying at the adult shelter. Crazy. Like, you're, you're in a shelter with adults, like crackheads. Like, picture, you know, the typical homeless person living on the street. And I'm here in this place with them for three weeks straight, not knowing that that's not where I was supposed to be. Now, this is a place that has no beds. Showers were, were hard to come by because they had like these huge lines trying to use these showers. Um, um, during the day, everybody had to leave the facility. Um, and then you get online around 8 o'clock in the evening to get back in. You slept on chairs because there were no beds there. So you, you just take a chair. Um, whatever stuff you had, you had to like put it beside you. And like some in some way or fashion, just like hook it to you so that nobody steals it. Yeah. And you just sit on a chair and just sleep the entire night. And in the morning before eight o'clock, you have to like leave the facility again. So yeah, that was the first three weeks of my life after after prison. I went to that shelter and I think I spoke with one of the case managers of that shelter. And she looked at me and she's like, Hey, come here. I've noticed you've been coming here for quite some time. Now, how old are you? And she's like, Yo, you're so young. Do you know that there's actually a there's a shelter that's more conducive for people of your age where you get much better help for your situation. So yeah, that's how I went there. I went to the um, the other shelter. That was the first time in three weeks where I l- laid down on a bed. That was the best feeling ever, man. I wasn't even the greatest bed. I just I just was super grateful just having a place to just lie down and just you know sleep. I took like the best shower of my life. I was in the shelter system for about two years. Uh, you know, I had to like, get a job. Um, I enrolled in school at the same time. Um, I enrolled in school in 2007. I think early 2008 was when I had enough money saved up to actually afford my own basement apartment. I do remember so, that yeah, apartment. Yep, yep. That was my first apartment after, after the shelter. So now when you went into school, what did you start pushing for at that point? I was revitalized at some point. I don't know what exactly what, what exactly it was. When I was in school, I was um, I was still like with the mind of hey, you know what, still do this. Um, 
there is a possibility that you can do it. But all the same, while I was doing that, um, I was very involved with science, science, science research. Um, I just I went to a lot of conferences, you know, um, presented my research work, and did all these different things. But you know, at night, while while I was on my job. Um, I, I worked security at the time. I, I was a security guard at the time. I would just like take out my laptop and just like do a whole bunch of Google searching and just you know see what the chances of me you know still fulfilling that lifelong dream of becoming a surgeon and what those chances were. And everything just looked bad. You know, a lot of comments I read were pretty much suggesting that you know if you had a felony, um, you would not even be able to get into med school. Talk less of say being board certified or anything of that nature so all the same i was still pushing on pushing on pushing on um a year before i graduated i went for this internship where i got paid like four thousand dollars awesome awesome the money i got from that i used to bring my sister over because uh, um up until that point i was living by myself so i brought my sister over and i continued on um when i graduated um i got a full scholarship to go to my next school which was pretty awesome i guess the not so cool thing about that entire period was this. Um, so right before I graduated, right, um, I, was, I was a pretty good student um, at school and I was recommended for this scholarship. This scholarship was a $30,000 a year scholarship from the time I finished at the community college up until I was done. And aside from that, you know, there was this, this mentorship program and I'll get access to material for the exams I had to take in order for me to go to med school and all these different things. Yeah, so I go for my first interview, sat down with these guys. They absolutely loved me. They're like, I love your story. You know, you went through so many hard things and for you to still be able to do so well, you know, having gone through these things is, you know, very, very um, inspirational this time and third. So I get called in for my second one and they asked me, they said that they heard something um, and they'll want me to explain. And when I told them about my criminal record, every like before then, right? They were talking about, yeah, we're going to introduce you to this person. And this is the school you would go to and this and the third. And after I just made mention of that, I just saw everything just crumble right, right in front of my eyes. And I think that hurt me so very much. Very, 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 very much because it would have dictated like so many other things. So um, after that, you know, I graduated. Um, I went to my other school, and I think it was at that point that it just began to sink in more that you know I might not be able to go to med school because I mean we have all these people that are just doubting me and you know casting judgment you know without even getting to fully understand the gravity of the situation I was coming from. And I mean, hey, I'm not trying to justify what I did. But at the same time, it just it was pretty tough. You know, it was pretty tough to handle. Okay. Um, with all these things going on, did you ever think about reaching out to your mom? Um, the last time I really saw my mother um, before I came to the U.S. was in 2001. Um, so she came for about a month. And before then was 1997, for about a month too. So that relationship was very strained. Now, I don't think reaching out to her, at least for me, would have done anything for me okay let me ask you this because i'm trying to put myself in your position those six months of being in prison did you ever feel resentment towards your mom ultimately i made that decision right yes ultimately i made a decision to take that person up on offer even though i rejected the first time or the first couple of times there are times where i thought that hey you know if i had the life that say several other people that i know had all this would not have happened but i mean hey i continued my science research 
And, you know, I was doing, I was doing relatively well, but then I couldn't really shake off, you know, losing out on that scholarship. The way I was rejected from that, having, you know, felt it so close to me, you know, does pretty much reinforced all the things I was reading online about, you know, if you have this, you won't be able to do medical school or you wouldn't be able to be board certified um, after you're done with medical school. So that, that pretty much started the the process of me becoming depressed. I just felt like I was just wasting my time in school. I would never be able to do the things I really want to do. It just seems like it's something that I'll continue reaching for, but I would never get. This led to a super terrible season in my life. I was, I was in a relationship at the time. Um, I stopped going to school first. I just couldn't get out of bed for the most part. And then it's like my girlfriend at the time noticed and she was like, all right, yo, you're like one of the most brilliant people I know. Why are you, why are you doing this to yourself? And yeah, it was just hard, man. I feel, I feel if I had an adult in my life at the time you know, that I could speak to, that could have helped me a lot then, but there was no one then. And yeah, eventually I just, I just stopped going to school altogether. Um, relationship crumbled and burned. And I was already there, asked out all by myself with nothing else. It was just me and my self-pitying body, I guess. I don't know. I do yeah. remember, though. I remember you used to call me those nights. I mean, I kind of knew that things were tough, but I just thought it was just, you know, the relationship being over. I didn't know wow. there was, like, another layer of... Yeah, of, there's, of, there's, there's multiple layers, man. The depression was what led to the end of the relationship for the most part. You know, it was just when we got together, I was still in the shelter. Um, I left the shelter. So she she saw, you know, this strong person going through all these different things. Now she knew my story as well. And mm -hmm. she was proud of that person. You know? She saw like the energy, the positivity, well, the ambition. And she saw all of that. And then all of a sudden, she sees this person that is no longer motivated to go to school. Matter of fact, hadn't been going to school for a while and she didn't even know about it. And, you know, everything just seems to be going down this downward spiral. So that that, that was pretty much it. You know, mm -hmm. I just became depressed and I was just like this unending downward spiral that, you know, she just couldn't deal with. And yeah, so that ended that relationship. And my siblings were with me at the time because I, I helped them come come back and i'm here i have two siblings i'm no longer going to school i don't have a job i get i get like a freaking eviction notice to get out the house so it's a whole bunch of things just started happening around the same time i i had been through the shelter system so in my head i just felt like hey, you know what? if i have to go and live in a shelter again no problem for me but i cannot have my siblings go through that yeah you know so we had like a, a little family meeting and I asked my sister, hey, this is what the situation is. I really don't want us to all go live in a shelter. So do you know anyone that you could go stay with? Um, you know, depending on the time I get back on my feet. And, you know, after much deliberation and reaching out, she found somewhere. My younger brother also found a place where he could stay. And I eventually was able to get some help from a friend to also stay at a place for uh, a couple of months. Did you ever look for the guy who gave you the drugs in Nigeria? Like, did you ever go on Facebook and be like, nigga, fuck you? Like, <laughs> <laughs> No, I mean, I, I think over the years, I found it very, 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 very hard to forgive myself because I just felt like I just threw all my dreams away because of it. And, and I think part of 
you know, forgiving yourself is forgiving the situation, forgiving the people that are involved in that situation, and just letting go of all those things altogether. I know it sounds cliche, but it truly does help. Unless you learn how to let go of, of those things that have hurt you so dearly, you cannot open up room for the good things and new things to come inside. So, mm-hmm. yeah, that was never a thought. You know, what will I do? What will I tell him? Like, give me back my time? You know, you can't, I can't do anything <laughs> at that point. So it's just... I just had to learn how to look forward to the future and and the opportunities that will come in the future and make sure that before those opportunities come, I'm well prepared to take advantage of those opportunities when they arrive. So So with his dream of being a surgeon now out of the window, he had to adjust his lenses and decide what to do next. He went through a few jobs and he found a new path along the way. I got the job. After a couple of years, I resigned from the job and... I pursued other interests. Um, I've always been very um, entrepreneurial. I just wanted to, you know, gain a skill set that would help me fulfill some of my entrepreneurial ideas. After I pursued um, skill learning and um, some other things, um, I was able to get like this very good job in Illinois in 2017, and I guess that was when things began to truly turn around for me. This job started last year. Amazing job. Um, amazing situation. Everything is just totally different. Uh, what we do is we build applications for different clients, different organizations. The company that I work for deals with um, insurance and retirement. Um, so what we do right now is we're building a tool, a platform where our different clients can pull reports, um, upload um, salary information for all their employees, and monitor the retirement portfolio for all the clients that uh, they have under them. At this point in the conversation, I asked him if he would have done anything different if he could, and what would he tell his past self? Well, in stages, right? Before before I got involved in, with that guy in the first place, I think I would have told myself not to do it and go to the embassy instead. And that would have saved me a whole bunch of pain right now. After the whole situation, um, it's just to reach out, you know, reach out, try to find an outlet, either a trusted adult or somebody that you can talk to, reason with, and hopefully um, design a pathway out of the mess that you're currently in. And also, I think most importantly is that there's nothing wrong in pivoting. You know, if, if you have a certain goal or, or something you've always wanted to achieve and it just seems like you've been standing at the door banging for so long and it's not going to open up try something else you know that might not be the only way for you to achieve fulfillment and 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 receive all that you want to receive out of life thank you so much for sharing your story daniel this has been really enlightening um, you're very welcome man. Very... you're tired <laughs> no i am i've gone through just a bunch of emotions and also knowing that i was there when a lot of this stuff was happening maybe i would have helped a bit more obviously there's so many people that that were instrumental in, in helping me out so i cannot underestimate or you know, undermine the influence in my life. It's always good to have friends around when you're going through situations, even if you don't voice the things you're going through. Mm-hmm. But thanks, thanks for your friendship. 
I remember those nights, man. I'm like, yo, I don't know what to do, man. This girl just... <laughs> nah, like, like, to me, like I said, I was just really happy to help any way I could. And just like, but I'm, I'm happy that we're here now. I'm happy we're both in better places. And, you know, we're figuring shit out. But um, thank you so much. I'm going to stop the recording now. All right. So we can just gist. <laughs> All right. Sounds good. <laughs> That was a really intense story. What What do you think? I want to start first with being moved or being tricked. And I'm sure you know about people that this has happened to just as well as I know about people that this has happened to. Where they get told that they're going to Nigeria for a vacation or for something. And then they, they find out that they're actually being left there. And the rationale that parents usually give for this is, you know, in situations where children are badly behaved, they want them to go home because they think that being home is going to have some sort of um, positive effect on them. However, when you really think about it, you are taking a child and upending them from the lives that they've known. And in, in this case with your friend, that's exactly what happened. Like He's been in this country all this time, and then he's going back home, and he thinks he's just going to visit, not knowing that he's going to stay. And I think, for me, that highlights a lot about the way that our relationships often are as like African children um, with our parents. I think it highlights that that lack of that respect that doesn't flow both ways because if you if you think logically about it the only reason why you can do that to someone is because you can is because you're in the position of that guardian and you're able to just upend their life and the only reason why you wouldn't tell them what was to come is if you didn't feel like you had to I agree with you. I think the relationship with his parents was is quite interesting to me and not to dissect what really happened between them but i find it interesting that a lot of things in life have domino effects and i felt like the fact that his parents were not together to look at it from their side or at least his mom's side of the situation she probably was going through a lot at that point and just needed the kids to be in a place where they were more stable which you know was with her parents in nigeria at least she felt do I think she could have done a little bit more? Possibly. But once again, I try not to go into things like that because, you know, I don't know the real... The situation. Exactly. I got the vibe that he didn't really want to speak about his relationship with his mom, which I understand because, you know, with this podcast, we're not trying to become people who, like, judge or fix situations. Like, we're storytelling mm-hmm. podcasts. So... Um, a part of me was curious to really know, like, what's the relationship between your mom, your, yourself and your siblings now? You know, he told me there was no relationship. And I was tempted to, you know, go into details. And I, to be honest, I tried a little bit. But the vibe I got was that that was something that he wasn't willing to deal with right now. Mm-hmm. And I respect that. And I understand that. Yeah. Um, his experiences in life have been really tough and I'm happy he's in a much better place because yeah. not a lot of people make it out the other side the way he has you know no he he was especially with you know when he talks about going to prison and receiving the sentence that he ended up receiving he was quite fortunate I don't even think we have to debate on that he was very fortunate and I remember me and you were talking about how we we were reminded of Ava DuVernay's When They See Us. Yes, yes. And 
about how easily he could have ended up on that side of things, uh, of the quote-unquote justice system, right? Yeah. And this is a kid that just just coming in from Nigeria. I think, one, he was very fortunate. But I think even him, like his spirit, I can't imagine where he could have gotten that strength to persevere from. I think it's one of those things as Africans where most of us are forced to be resilient, you know? When you have seen struggle or you've been mm-hmm. torn into situations where you have to pretty much figure yourself out, mm-hmm. like your living conditions and things around you aren't as ideal as, you know, one would expect. Yeah, but prison? <laughs> yeah, but prison is a whole new thing. You're prison right. is a whole different ball game. He says something along the lines of, there was no light at the end of my tunnel. And that, for me, really stuck out because that is the reality of a lot of people, unfortunately, right now that are living in Nigeria and that have lived in Nigeria. You know, it's one thing when you're living here or when you're living in another country where you know that there's a system in place. It may not work well for everyone, right? But to some degree, it works, right? You know that if you get super good grades in school, there's an opportunity for you to get a scholarship and not have to pay for your higher education, Like, you just know that if you do certain things, certain results are supposed to come about. Now, that may not always be the case, depending on the color of your skin, your sex, and a whole bunch of other factors. But for the most part, there is a system in place. In a country like Nigeria, where everything around you seems to be failing, that is not the case. And when you're a 17-year-old kid, he talks about, you know, his family members or people that he otherwise could have gone to who also were kind of in the same position as him. And so you're in this place where you know that systematically things don't even work right. And then you have this offer that seems ridiculous initially, but that, you know, slowly starts becoming not so bad or or that your brain slowly starts to rationalize you start thinking okay what if this is my way out yeah, and i think yeah. that's that's so important to, to to talk about this this lack of hope and what it can drive you to yeah you're absolutely right i think we'll be really surprised if we found out the amount of people around us who have had to do really difficult things to get through their situations and i hope this story really just speaks to somebody about whatever it is that is going on with you we know it's not easy to deal with things and it's what we're trying to achieve with this podcast we're trying to get people to come to talk about these things and to have this close-knit community of africans talking you know um we're open to all sorts of stories we're open to all sorts of discussions we're working on some really incredible stories and if you like to support us if you like to help us get more traction get more attention what you can really do right now is to go on apple podcast and give us a five star rating and drop a nice comment it really helps it's going to help more people to come across this podcast it's going to help Mm -hmm. us to get more support get the word out there yes get the word out there which we really need at this point you know let's have these conversations more our twitter account is moments pod our website is in these moments pod.com you can reach out to me on twitter at king wale k-i-n-g-w-o-l-e you can reach out to Tammy at Timmy underscore Neuron. That's N-I-R-A-N. We hope you enjoyed this episode. We'll be back with you in two weeks with our second episode. Thank you very much yeah, for listening. Yeah, see you in two weeks. <laughs>